Father, we do praise you this morning for, as has already been mentioned, that we just trust that even though we don't see you, sometimes don't even sense your presence, you are there. And not only is that great comfort for us as believers, but it gives us access to all that you are and all that you have and all that you plan for us. And we praise you for that this morning. And as we do look at a little bit of what you reveal concerning yourself that we might uh, not only understand, but we bow our hearts that we might worship you. So we commit our time in Jesus' name. As we're saying we want to get into what I describe as the nature and perfections of God. And way back, I don't remember if you remember, I introduced the concept of the incomprehensibility of God. It's a biblical concept, biblical doctrine, several verses indicate that. And what we mean by that is there's no way that we in ourselves can understand or know the one true God because he is beyond our comprehension. That's incomprehensibility. To use an analogy, it'd be like a man that is locked up in a dungeon and he cannot see outside of that. There is a sun out there that casts light, but no light enters into that dungeon. So the only way that he can conceive of light or sun is whatever he can come up with in his thinking and his rationale and in his mind, and it'll always be distorted. Similarly, what God is all about, we cannot conceive of it. That's the incomprehensibility of God. One of the verses is the Isaiah 55 passage, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts, that passage, but there's others as well. In fact, Jesus himself says, no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. But it's not a hopeless situation in that just like the man in a dungeon, if there's a tiny little crack or a tiny little pinhole, then a little tiny beam of light shines into that dungeon and he gets a perspective on what light is like. He's not outside. He's not exposed to that sunlight. But he has a a little idea. And similarly, we get not only little pinholes, but we get windows where the room can be filled with light. Similarly, in Scripture, the only way when Jesus said that, no one knows the Father except the Son, no one knows the Son except the Father, and those that God, what? Reveals himself. So even though God is incomprehensible, the Bible gives us a picture of who God is by revelation. So the incomprehensibility of God doesn't mean that God is not knowable because he's built within us the ability to know him, but it comes by revelation. So we have to understand what scripture teaches about God, otherwise our vision or view of him is totally distorted. Some of the attributes are harder to understand, and theologians have classified these as incommunicable. And what we mean by that, it's kind of like we use that same word for diseases. A communicable disease is one that you can pass on to someone else. So also the perfections, I prefer to call them perfections, 
Those that are communicable are those that God has instilled in us. In other words, passed on to us in creating us in the image of God. Those are easier to understand and comprehend because we can relate to them within us, who we are. For example, God is omniscient. Now, we are not omniscient, but God, being omniscient, knows all things, but he's given us an intellect to be able to know finite, small amounts of things. That's a communicable attribute. God is love. And he's given us the capacity to be able to relate to one another in a loving relationship. That's another communicable attribute. There are some attributes that God has reserved solely to himself. We call those incommunicable because he has not built them within the image of God. So we've been stressing those as we've looked at some of the others. We've looked at the self-existence of God. And does anyone remember what we said that means, self-existent? God has what? He's always existed. Well, he's always existed. That's his eternality. He's not created by any outside force. He just is. He is. Okay, there's nothing that has brought him about. But at the heart of it is he has no needs because he is self-contained, self-sufficient, self-existent. Right. We are the very opposite. We need everything in order to sustain us. God has provided that, but we're the opposite. So it's hard to conceive of a being self-existent, self-existence. We also looked at another perfection we call immutability, and we're the opposite of it. God is immutable in that he does not change. He does not learn. He does not grow. In no way does he change. That's immutability. We change every nanosecond. We're constantly changing. We have a need to grow. We can decline as well. We don't stay the same. God stays the same because he's immutable. Now, another perfection that we'll look at today is his omnipresence. So we'll expand and see how we are not omnipresent. In fact, we're localized. But just a review of perfections. Prefer to call them perfections. Just some major ideas relating to them. Number one. All his qualities are perfect. That's why I prefer the word perfection. And even though we have some of the attributes of God, they're not perfect because of sin. And not only are they not perfect, but they're very finite, very limited. So they're all perfect when they relate to God. And when we speak of his attributes, you can't separate these out. So not They're not a part of God, but they're the essence of what God is. So when we speak of omnipresence or self-existence or love or any of the perfections, they're not parts that make up a whole, but they're essentially all that God is. So it is what God is. Thirdly, he's more than the sum of the perfections. Now, I think the Bible describes... The sum, using the word glory, in other words, a display or a 
perception of the totality of who God is. But there are some, I believe, perfections that are not even revealed. We only have what God has revealed. Because God is infinite, we could not exhaust the nature and perfection of God. So he's more than the sum of all those perfections that he has revealed. Does that make sense? The perfections are known only, I've already mentioned this, are only known through revelation, through what God has revealed in his word, through his inspired writers. So we cannot come into an understanding of who God is apart from that revelation. That's why it's important to study his word to get a picture of who he is. Every concept that we have of God is a distorted, inaccurate, and in fact totally inadequate picture of who God is because we do not know and because of the incomprehensibility of God. So the only way that we understand is what he has revealed. And some of these are hard to conceive because of our limited understanding. What is that, number five? I should have numbered them. They're true of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, including omnipresent And we'll talk about, there's distinctions in that as well. And in some of those distinctions, (coughs) Jesus voluntarily limited himself within the body of one person, one human being. But it did not remove or take away his omnipresence. Hard to conceive. So these are all true of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because they are all God. Does that make sense? I think you understand the doctrine of the Trinity. So when he was here on earth as a human, he operated only knowing what the Father was directly revealing to him. So he he had laid off all of these other perfections completely, which is why he was able to be killed, all the rest. But now that he has returned to glory, they are all his once again. So he's not up there as a limited Yes. Sort of a human, but he now has the entire array of perfections. I don't know how else to say it. They are all his. I'd, I'd go a step further and say even when he was finite, he did not relinquish or lose any of the perfections. Otherwise, he would have been less than God. The kenosis, the word kenosis is kenao, the Greek word from Philippians 2, Translated, he emptied himself. That doesn't mean that he relinquished. It has the idea of he voluntarily limited himself in terms of access to his omnipresence. He he chose Chose. to not use some of those perfections during his time here. But he he did. who he was. Exactly. It was an intentional choice on his part. Right. Now, some of these things, like I said, are hard to kind of put together. But if you do the study of all of the scriptures, this is the conclusion. So that's why he would say, all I need to do is call, and I would have a thousand legions here to lift me up. Right. He could have healed everyone had had he chosen. Because he was omnipotent. But his healings were limited. His omnipotence was limited. He said no one knows when he would return. Not even the son, not even himself. 
because he limited himself to human understanding and human knowledge. He was a contradiction, you might even say, in terms of his humanity. But he did not set aside the, the word in Philippians 2 that speaks of him emptied himself, does not have the idea of relinquishing or losing any of those attributes. So, in essence, that was a refutal of Satan's lie to Eve in the garden when he said, oh, all you do is eat this and you will be like God. Jesus was God, but he was operating under a completely human, right. uh, in a completely human uh, framework. He limited himself. And so he, he did not reach for that, you will be like God, even though he was, so he was limiting. He was voluntarily limiting right. himself rather than reaching for something that, as even Adam could not access. Right. And so also he limited his omnipresence that we're going to look at to a local body like you and I. Wouldn't it be nice to be in two places at one time? Wouldn't you like to be working and laboring and on the beach at the same time? (laughs) We couldn't handle it. Yeah. So his perfections describe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, these are common misconceptions concerning the omnipresence of God. Probably one that is very prevalent in our culture, not so much amongst Christians because of the, probably the radicalness of it. Pantheism, obviously, is almost the opposite or, I guess, a misconception of it or a distortion of the omnipresence. I'll define it in a moment, but most of you, I think, already have a handle on it. When we speak of pantheism, the idea is God is everywhere or everything, and everything is God. Now, it's looking at God in terms of the universe. So it kind of equates God and the universe. That's very common, not only in New Age thinking, but common thinking today. God is everything, and everything is God. It's a distortion of omnipresence. So the universe is identified with God, one and the same, that's totally unbiblical, totally in error. It's at the heart of the New Age movement. That's why New Agers can even say that you are God, or gods, you might say, individual gods. But scripture speaks of God not in a pantheistic way, but speaks of God as omnipresent. And what do we mean by omnipresent? We'll describe that a little more. Pantheism, I think of like the force be with you, um, karma, would that be opposite? Yeah, there's some distinctions there from pantheism, but they're almost, they're extensions of man's trying to come up with an idea of God. So scripture speaks of God distinct from the creation. That is fundamental and basic. God is separate. Remember, we talked about the transcendence of God. God being transcendent. That's totally separate, totally distinct. Now, I'm going to come back to this in a moment. But fundamental transcendence of God, distinct from the creation. He is the creator. In fact, he existed before there was a creation, before the universe was created. He is the creator, obviously. So another misconception is God is nowhere. 
that's atheistic. There is no God. So God is nowhere. Another misconception, very common, the man upstairs kind of, he's only up there, keep him up there, don't bring him down here. So we refer to him as the man upstairs. Should I capitalize that or not? Probably not because it's a misconception of who God is. We also think in terms of God far away, God separate, God apart. Now he is apart, but at the same time, We'll look at the concept of God being near. In fact, there's passages that indicate that God is far. What is, what do they mean? Does that contradict his omnipresence? Or is there some harmonization that we can come with? And when God is far away, especially if you're a believer and you pray and you pray and it doesn't seem like God answers, he seems like he's far away. What's going on there? If God is omnipresent. Another misconception common amongst some denominations. Don't want to mention Roman Catholic, so I won't. He's in the building. In fact, it's common. You know, most of my relatives are Roman Catholic. That's their background. So they'll make the sign of the cross when they drive by a church because that's where God is. He's not outside. He's inside that building. That's a misconception. It goes against omnipresence. Judaism in the Old Testament when... God was present with his people as a sign because there was a period where he was. He was. And what's going on there? Does that go against the omnipresence of God? No. We'll talk about that. Okay, very good. So these are common misconceptions. But the Bible teaches the concept of God's omnipresence. And what is that? Does God seem distant? Is he only in church? The answer is no. God is infinitely everywhere all at once. Infinitely everywhere all at once. So he is as much present here today as he is anywhere else in the universe, inside the universe, outside the universe, all at once. That's the omnipresence of God. Also erases all time. Erases what? All time with God. Right. He's outside of time. He's outside of time. Exactly. In fact, all of these perfections are intertwined and work together and related. That's why you can't separate them out. We separate them to understand them, but that's why I mentioned perfections are part of the composite of who God is. We don't want to divide God up. He's infinitely everywhere. You might even say he's infinite. That's one of the perfections. Infinitely everywhere at once. So in terms of the concept, what do we mean by omnipresence? There's a few points that we can make. Number one, I just made the main one, infinitely present everywhere. There's not a place where God is absent He fills all, what are the scriptures? He's in all and fills all, present with his whole being. He doesn't divide up or he doesn't spread himself out, you might say. So he's present everywhere with his whole being. He doesn't divide himself, doesn't separate himself. Kind of the alternative, not absent anywhere. So there's just as much God at every location, as any other location. Psalm 139. 139. 
Yeah, where can I run from your presence? Exactly. In fact, we're going to read that one. For he's not more in one place. So he was not more in the temple, Mary Lee. You were describing that. Then he was outside the temple. Now that's hard to conceive because of the passages that we'll look at. So he's not more in one place than he is in another place. Why did they have the, that word God revealed something? We'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. So the universe does not exhaust him. Why? I've already mentioned that. He's outside. He's not only within the universe, but he's outside of the universe. So the universe is finite. Scriptures indicate that it's finite and limited. Even though we have not seen the edge of the universe, Russ Humphreys believes that we will, because of a statement in Genesis on the second day, he believes that we will probably discover that at the edge of the universe is something of a canopy of water. When God separated the waters, I mentioned that when we were looking at Genesis 1, an idea that Humphreys has. I think it's got a lot of validity to it. So he's outside. Even though we can't see the edge of the universe, there is a finiteness to it or an end to it. And it does not exhaust him. Some of the statements of theologians, W.G.T. Shedd, God also, as the infinite spirit, no limitations, is present at every point of space as a totality. I've summarized some of that. We could even add to his quote what we just said just now, present at every point of space and what? Outside of space or beyond space. So W.G.T. Shedd, another uh, writer, Labardine says, God is over all things, under all things, alluding to a couple of scriptures, outside all, so outside the universe, within, but not enclosed, so that building, that temple can't contain him, without, he goes on, without, but not excluded, above, but not raised up, below, but not depressed, Holy above, presiding, holy beneath, sustaining, holy within, filling. So if you can put all that together, it's a good description of omnipresent. Charnock, in his, what's it, Nature and Perfections of God, I think that's the title of his book. As God is not measured by time, so he is not limited by place or location. God... Because infinite fills all, yet so as not to be contained in them, as wine and water is in a vessel, he is from the height of the heaven to the bottom of the deeps. In every point of the world and in the whole of it, and we would add, and outside of the world, in fact outside of the universe, yet not limited by it, but beyond it, because he is infinite, immutable, and omnipotent, bringing all of the other perfections together. And there's other quotes that you can find, but see, these are some of the ones that I found most descriptive. What about the scriptures? I've given you the concept of the omnipresence. We'll look at the scriptures, and then we'll look at some of these distinctions, answer Terry's question, 
and some of the others that you've raised. The central passage, there's several, by the way. I'm giving you probably the clearest ones. You're familiar with Psalm 139. Where can I go from thy spirit? There's no place I can go. We're limited to earth, so even if we were to leave earth, we could not go from the spirit. Or where can I flee from thy presence? Nowhere. No place you can flee. If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, there's Sheol again. Behold, thou art there. Place of the dead, Sheol. If I take the wings, now again, this is poetic. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, and I'm just giving imagery here, even there thy hand will lead me and thy right hand will lay hold of me. And he goes on, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light surround me, the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to thee and the night is as bright as day. Darkness and and light are alike to thee. In other words, omnipresence. Jeremiah 23, 23 through 24. God himself revealing, I think, not only omnipresence, but other things in the passage. Am I a God who is near? What's the answer to that? Absolutely, declares the Lord. And not a God far off? It's both. Can a man hide himself in hiding places? No. So I do not see him, in other words, to a place that we cannot know that he's there. And this is the Lord speaking. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord, because he's omnipresent. You see that? God filling every location. Amos 9.2, though they dig into Sheol, the place of the dead in the Old Testament, from there, God speaking, will my hand take them. God is in Sheol. Is God in hell? He'd have to be if he's omnipresent. All right? And though they ascend to heaven, kind of the alternative to Sheol, from there I will bring them down. Now this is poetic. And God is speaking more kind of relational in terms of two locations, but it speaks of God being everywhere. In other words, you can't go to the furthest extremes and not find God. That's the essence of what Amos is speaking there. If you want a New Testament passage, Paul to the philosophers who had a temple to an unknown God because God is incomprehensible, just to make sure they had some honor to even a God they were not aware of. The one that they were not aware of was the one true God. Paul is speaking to them that they would seek God, in other words, all men, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. This also speaks of our limited understanding and our limited spirituality to sense what is right in front of us, all around us. Perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And he's speaking at that time in Athens. We're reading it here in Albuquerque, and the application is the same to us. He's not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even some of your own 
prophets have said, for we also are children of God. Quotes a secular source, interestingly. Now, it's related, in fact, it's related to many others, but more directly to what we've already described as the transcendence of God. The transcendence is God is the concept, and it doesn't go against the omnipresence, but it's a distinct teaching of Scripture that God is separate and distinct from the creation. And it emphasizes God outside of the creation, separate and distinct. Now, that goes against all of the religions of the Old Testament, the false religions, goes against all the religions that exist today. All religions have some kind of connection with the creation and the creator. In fact, there's the tendency to worship the creation rather than the creator, but God is separate and distinct. We call that transcendence. And from the very beginning, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, in the beginning there's no creation. In the beginning, God. So God is eternal, it exists apart and separate from the creation. In the beginning, God created, so now there's a universe, the heavens and the earth. That's a biblical way of describing universe. There's no word in Hebrew for universe. That that is the furthest away, the heavens, and that that is the closest. So everything, God is the creator. So he's separate and distinct, transcendence. Now, that does not mean that God is not within the creation. That's another aspect of who God is. We call that what? Transcendence? Omnipresence, but there's another descriptive word, eminence. Eminent. In other words, he is within and interacts with the creation, deals with man, has conversations with man. Kathy? You said that the Separate instinct from... The creation. From the universe, creation, all that he created. What you're saying imminent is that he interacts with creation, and, and yet you said it was that he was in, within creation. How does that fit erroneous view that God is... God is first God. He's not equivalent. He's uh, That limits God to materialism. Hmm? When they say God is in the tree, so you should worship the tree. He is, but in their thinking, he's limited to that. Okay? He's outside, separate and distinct. He doesn't affect God whatsoever. That's right. Think think about a glass prism, okay? Light goes through the prism. The prism, uh, the light fills the prism, but is not. So God is in the tree, but he's not. And he's it's like, separate. It's like God's light going through the tree, but he's not the tree. It's God's presence in the tree, but he's not the tree. Yeah. And God's omnipresence combines the two. Transcendence and eminence put together. There's another descriptive perfection that some scholars describe as his immensity. And sometimes they use omnipresence and Im- immensity synonymously. In other words... God encompasses all, or is part of all, or is present amongst all. He is immense. So these are related more directly, even though all attributes fit together. Let's take a look at some of these issues. How does God manifest himself? He manifests himself in different ways. And I've got that on your outline sheet towards the 
we could call this the distinctions within his omnipresence. And the emphasis is God has chosen to manifest and to reveal himself in particular ways in order to relate to you and I. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. Uh, Some of the distinctions, for example, and let me refer to a couple of things in my notes here. We could say that God, even though he's fully everywhere all at once, yet in the way that he has revealed himself to us, he has revealed himself as not being present in the same way in all locations. He does not dwell on earth in the same sense as he dwells, for example, in heaven. So there's some distinctions that we can make. Charnock, same writer, says God is in heaven in regard of the manifestation of his glory, in hell by the expression of his justice, in earth by the discoveries of his wisdom, power, patience, and compassion, and you can add to the list, in his people by the monuments of his grace, and in all in regard to his substance. So he does, in fact, there are distinctions in the way that he manifests that omnipresent presence. So some distinctions, I just made the distinction. Secondly, some of the ways the Bible describes God in terms of these limitations in our thinking, but no limitations in terms of God. For example, God appears in places in the Bible. There's lots of examples of God appearing before men. That does not take away or limit his omnipresence. When he spoke with Adam and Eve in the garden, that does not mean that he was only limited to the garden and not outside of the garden. It's a way that God manifested himself in order to communicate to man. He manifested himself and appeared to some throughout history. Noah, for example, Abraham, Moses, Paul, even in the New Testament, Stephen, he saw something of a revelation of God, appearances, the prophets encountered God, but that does not mean that God was away when the prophets were there and not somewhere else. He is simply manifesting himself in different ways. Sometimes the Bible speaks of God being far. I'll read Isaiah 55 in a moment. And there are also verses that encourage particularly believers of the immediate presence of God. He's not distant, in other words. A couple of passages to look at. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now, this is poetic. It's not implying that God is not always near. But there is a sense in which the Bible is communicating some truths to us. We'll get to that in a moment. Deuteronomy 31, 6, be strong and courageous. This is to the children of Israel before they enter the land. They're going to have to go into battle, warfare, conquer the land, part of God's plan and giving them the land. So be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, the Canaanites. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. You have all of the resources of God with you. It does not imply that he's not also amongst the Canaanites or with the Canaanites. 
but not in the same sense. So he will go with you. He will not fail you or forsake you because he is ever present. He is there. What separates God from man? Sin, among other things. Okay. Not space because of the omnipresence. But what we're dealing with in these passages are relationships. Even though God is omnipresent, there's a sense in which the unbeliever does not have access, you might say, to the resources of God. Does not have the power of God, even though God is all around. Does not have that relationship. So these verses are stressing relationship, not speaking in terms of location or space when we refer to God. What about sacred places? We could categorize a whole area of where God manifests himself in special ways. None of these take away from the omnipresence. God is outside of these sacred spaces, but he's chosen because of the relationship to his people to, in sometimes some occasions, even reveal something of himself. Revealing his glory, and he is chosen. And there's lots of verses along these lines. Let me give you a few of them. Psalm 123.3. To thee I lift up my eyes, O thou who art enthroned in the heavens. Now, is he limited to the heavens? No. But there is a sense in which he is enthroned. So the heavens are a sacred or a special place where God manifests himself. Now, we don't see that. Stephen was given the privilege of seeing, given a glimpse of it. But there are other creatures other than man that God manifests his presence, angelic creatures. Heaven is that location. He seems to rule as well. In other words, it's a source of rulership, source of his authority. So we could, would that be considered a specific place? It's different from material place, but we'd have to categorize it as a place. The Bible seems to describe it in that way. Psalm 139, if I ascend to heaven, there's heaven again, special place, thou art there. There's also Matthew 6, 9, and this is Jesus. Pray then in this way, our Father who art in heaven, there's a special manifestation Our prayers are directed upward. Hallowed be thy name, Lord's Prayer. So heaven, the garden, was a particular manifestation of God when God created man. I think the garden was a special place. This is why man was cast out of the garden after sin, because there was a special manifestation. This was, I think, to angelic creatures that were aware of the presence of God in the heavenly realm. God is demonstrating things by the creation of man on earth, and he created, I think, a garden to manifest that presence. Very evident in the Old Testament, the creation of the tabernacle, and then later the temple, which was the more permanent location. And even Solomon recognized that the building, that as magnificent as it was, could not contain an omnipresent God. But God chose to manifest his glory. The Exodus passage, after the completion of the tabernacle, 
Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is simply for the benefit of the children of Israel, for mankind to have a sense and sensually, visually, experientially, they could have a sense that God was there in a special way that does not limit or remove the omnipresence of God. So the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This was after the construction of it. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled in on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So also in the time of Solomon, when the temple was built, the glory filled the temple in a similar way. Second Chronicles 7, 2, the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because this is the temple, because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Special manifestation for the benefit of mankind. Psalm 26, 8, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house, that's the temple, and the place where your glory dwells. You give man a sense of security. There's a special place, sacred place today. It's not the tabernacle. It's not the temple. Not a church building. But within man himself. In fact, when a body of believers gathers together, there's a special sense corporately as well within the church and within believers. And it doesn't have to be in a building. Whenever two or three, as Jesus says, whenever two or three are gathered in my name, what? There I am in their midst. So it doesn't have to be within a building, but when corporately we gather, but individually, and this is true only of the believer, the one that is born again, that's what it means. The Spirit comes to dwell. We're going to talk a lot about that when we get into Romans 6, 7, and 8. One of the clearest passages, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. or do you not know that your body is the temple? And if you were a Jewish person, what were all the images that you would have of a structure of a building? And now the body of the believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Not limited, but in a special manifestation. And you can sense that. Holy Spirit, who is within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. You belong to the Holy Spirit now. You belong to God. Ephesians 2.22, in whom you also are being built together. Now, in that passage, he's using the imagery of a temple again. But it's not a physical temple. It's a spiritual temple in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That's the sacred place during the church age. What about a future period of time? Is there going to be a temple in the future? Is there going to be a sacred place? There's going to be a millennial temple. In fact, Ezekiel spends, what, eight chapters describing a millennial temple where God is going to manifest himself similarly to what he did in the Old Testament. That's not the church age anymore. It's different. And even into eternity, God is going to manifest his presence. But what does Revelation 21 tell us? Not in a temple. John is describing the new heavens and the new earth, or the, I believe, the eternal state. And I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, notice the Lamb, 
John's favorite word to describe Jesus in the book of Revelation, God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. In other words, his presence, his omnipresence will be more evident in eternity. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Special manifestation of God, even in in the eternal state. Well, how can we uh, apply this? From a negative perspective, you can't escape. There's no escape for the unbeliever. He might harden his heart to spiritual things and not see anything spiritual, but God is right before their eyes, their blind eyes. So what that means is there's no such thing as secret sins. You can't hide anything from God. We hide things from one another. God sees everything, every sin. No secrets. No thoughts that he does not know. He's in our brains, you could say. He sees every thought, every motive, every action that is outward. So the omnipresence in a positive, that also means as believers, no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, we have all his protection. And even to the point of death, what does death do? It simply releases us from these sinful bodies to the immediate presence of God. So we have access to all his presence, all that he is at any moment, at any location, no matter what circumstance. Great encouragement. That means we have all access to all his resources, all that he has for us. And oftentimes we limit him, uh, not because he's limited, but because we're, our hearts are not right to receive all that he has. And another one here, that means that no matter where we're at, we can worship him and should worship him, and we can worship him for his omnipresence. A reverence, knowing that we are always in the presence of God. Some people find a location or a circumstance or a building where they feel reverent or reverence, but that's really an illusion because we can reverence him anywhere, in the middle of the day, anywhere where we find ourselves. So a closing thought here, we have the creator of all things with us at all times, no matter where we go. Mary Lee. That was the conclusion of the pastor that was released from Turkey a month or so ago, that uh, even in prison, the, this horrible prison, he could still worship God and give God glory. And he was accessible hard, but yep. he was there. So the omnipresence, even though it has some aspects that are hard to put together, comfort to those that know him. Who wants a close for Dwayne, why don't you close for Dear Lord, it's been good to be here today, and thank you for your holy word. Give us insights. There's such great depth of wisdom in your holy word that we will never be able to fathom the whole of it. We're grateful for this class and raise and give the words and the strength and the ability to express uh, your ways to us. Your ways are above our eyes. You're so amazing. We're just so grateful. All these scriptures that we've heard this great encouragement. Help us to go out this class today and 